So we're, we're today coming to the end of this series called Curious and the questions that you submitted. And uh, if you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're here. If you're watching online, we're, we're delighted that you're worshiping with us via the internet. So let's just dig in on this last of the series of Curious. There is something about a rainbow that brings out the curiosity in me. Now, rainbows aren't rare here in Southern Indiana, but they're not plentiful either. They're not a daily occurrence like there are some places around the world. So when one happens, or that rare double rainbow that you see, my curiosity is piqued. I want to know more. It's a fun moment. Now, I realize that scientifically, a rainbow is formed both by reflection and refraction of the sun's rays through the raindrops. But that alone doesn't satisfy my curiosity. However, that's not all there is to the mystery of rainbows. For instance, no two people see the same rainbow. You realize that? that? No two people see exactly the same rainbow. If you're standing next to me, you may be a little taller, you may be a little shorter, you're standing at a slightly different angle. We're looking through different raindrops and we're looking at different angles. You don't see quite the same rainbow that I do. What's more, you will not see a rainbow at noon. To create a rainbow, the light must strike a raindrop at exactly 42 degrees. And while I have never seen one, if the moon is out, it's full and it's bright and it strikes the rain through a storm at 42 degrees, you get a moon bow, a rainbow at night. We identify the seven principal colors as red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. But did you realize that there are actually uh, over a million shades of color in a rainbow? Dorothy could sing somewhere over the rainbow, but it's actually brighter under the rainbow. Next time you see one, it's like an arch that divides the sky. And what's under the rainbow is brighter than what is above the rainbow. And of course, rainbows happen only on rainy days. It arches across the sky as a symbol of hope during the storms of our lives, encouraging us. Most of all, when I see a rainbow, I think of God. God said to Noah, I will put my bow in the sky and never again will I destroy this world with a global flood. Now, I find it interesting that of the six times the word rainbow appears in Scripture, three refer to the promise that we find in Genesis chapter 9 about the flood, and three refer to heavenly images of things that are yet to be. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 says, Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell face down and heard the voice of one speaking. Revelation chapter 4 verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald circled the throne. Now these rainbow pictures in scripture stand like colorful, hopeful bookends on God's eternal story. And that's what brings us to our curious questions for today. All of which have to do with the concept of those things yet to be seen. What is there after this life is over? Is there an afterlife? What is life after death like? And on they go. Now, I think we could all agree this morning that the very concept of life after death leaves us with more questions than answers. 
And if you're hoping to go home today with more answers than questions, you won't. We can't even begin to plumb the depths of this today. But hopefully we'll just scratch the surface a little bit. The very fact that the major religions of this world all have something about an afterlife suggests that God has planted the seed of eternity in our hearts and minds from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, that's what the wise King Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. The Bible says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I believe the seed of eternity has been hardwired into our being. Now, some view faith in an afterlife as an emotional crutch just to get us through the tough times of life. That's all it is. But I believe it is the gift of hope. I, I want you to know what I believe this morning. I believe that there is a far greater life to come. I believe that what is to come is so much greater than what is now that it defies human explanation or understanding. There are a lot of good questions, a lot of tough questions that go along with this subject. So I'm going to start with the tough one first. Is there an alternative destiny? According to the scriptures, yes, there is more than one eternal destiny. The Bible speaks of both heaven and hell. Now you need to know right up front that hell was created for Satan and his demonic horde as a place of separation apart from God for the rebellion against God in heaven. The word hell today is more commonly used, I think, in the flippant way, more of that colloquial use today than what we use it from a biblical scriptural standpoint of view. The most awkward sermon compliment that I ever received came out in this foyer a few years ago from a man who was visiting that morning, came out, shook my hand, looked in my eye, and said, hell of a good sermon this morning, preacher. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with something like that? <laughs> so I thanked him. I was afraid not to, honestly. And while I understood his intent to compliment, there's just something about invoking hell to validate the proclamation of God's word that just doesn't seem to fit. After all, hell is a hideous subject. To treat it casually means we have failed to consider its tragedy. The words of scripture concerning hell cast a gloomy shadow on the pages of biblical text. Jesus spoke of it frequently. Do you realize that? 13% of his teachings refer to eternal judgment and hell. Two-thirds of his parables point to the resurrection and judgment that follows. Jesus wasn't trying to be harsh, just honest. Bluntly honest so that we would get the picture. What is hell like? I can't say. I don't know. More people are familiar with Dante's description of hell in the inferno than they are with the scriptures. For me, the most disheartening picture is not the common pictures we often think of. It is a word that comes out of one of Jesus' parables outside. In the parable of the wedding banquet... A king is hosting a wedding for his son, the prince. In the story, Jesus speaks of a wedding crasher who had no right to be there. 
He was neither a friend nor a family member nor a follower of the prince. And so the prince's father, the king, told the servants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness. The parable is prophetic about things to come. Outside. Outside of what? Outside the walls of the heavenly city. Outside the bounds of God's love, forgiveness, blessing, and grace. Outside the confines of laughter, joy, and hope. Outside. That's total separation from the God who created us, who made us in his image, who loved us enough that he allowed his son to die a ransom for our sins. Scottish theologian James Denny writes that of those who reject God, they pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Honestly, I can't think of anything more painful or frightening than that word outside. Being forever separated from God. And really, folks, that's all I need to know to convince me I don't want that destiny. I think most everybody else feels the same way. And so this question came up, as it often does. Why then does God send people who are not Christians to suffer in hell? That's a tough question. That's a good question. So let's take a look at the question. In the first place, as we shared last week, God has chosen to give his creation a choice. We have choices. We can either choose to follow God or we can choose not to follow him. So here's the bottom line. God doesn't send anyone to hell. God just honors our choice. If a person doesn't want God, doesn't want to have anything to do with God, wants to avoid God like the plague in this life, is ambivalent to God in this life, why would God forcibly take him to heaven against his will? Is it fair that God should let everyone into heaven? Well, in truth, justice would be better served if no one was allowed into heaven. Let me explain. We understand the right of creation. If you hold a copyright or a patent, you get to determine how it is used. You write something that nobody else writes, you copyright it. You create something that nobody else creates, you patent it. And the creator gets to determine how it's used and who gets to use it. God, the designer, creator, and sustainer of this world, set down ten reasonable moral rules for humanity to live by. I don't think you can improve on the Ten Commandments for a moral standard. But if not the Creator, then who does get to set the moral rules? Somebody's going to do it. If not the Creator, who? You? I, I, I hope not. Me? That's even worse. Osama, Osama bin Laden and his ilk? Oh, I pray not. Your ultra-liberal or ultra-conservative neighbor? No, let's not go there. The U.S. government? The North Korean government? Serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer? Who gets to choose? Because somebody's going to choose what's right and what's wrong. Now, when you break our nation's laws, there's a consequence. We get that. Try convincing the good officer who just stopped you for speeding that there shouldn't be a consequence, that consequences don't matter. Good luck with that one. We get the principle. You break the law, you suffer the consequence. Same thing is true with God's law. 
You break the law, you suffer the consequences. And the ultimate consequence for breaking God's law is, is death. Now, now, now stop and think about this. Say, well, whoa, wow, I, I don't know that I break the law very often. Maybe you do more than you think. If I sinned only once a day in word or thought or action, and I'm telling you, there's no day like that for me. Who's that good to sin just once a day in word, thought, or action? But if that, let's pretend, that's all you did. You just sinned once a day. In a lifetime of 75 years, you would have broken the law of God over 27,000 times. You break the law in the United States 27,000 times, you're going to be incarcerated for 100 lifetimes. Do, do you get the point? Just on our best behavior, we have an indebtedness that is just astronomical. So if none of us got into heaven, God would be both just and justified. And if you think you deserve heaven, think again. That's arrogance at its worst. So let's begin by admitting that none of us deserves heaven. It is a gift, a gift of a loving, caring God. Now on the flip side, the thought that everyone should be in heaven is neither just nor justifiable. Does God say to an Adolf Hitler, well, Adolf, so you killed millions of my Abraham's descendants. I'm sure it was something that happened in your upbringing or the, the friends you had in grade school. Or maybe it was your first boss that put too much responsibility on your shoulders. I'm sure there's an excuse or a reason for what you did. So come on in and make yourself at home. Enjoy heaven. Would that be right? Would that be just? Would that be loving? So who gets to decide? The normal answer is God, but that's not the answer. We decide by our choices. Judgment in Scripture does not determine destiny. We have already determined our destiny by the choices we make in this life. C.S. Lewis wrote, There are two kinds of people in the world, those who say to God, Your will be done, and those to whom God says, Your will be done. Or to put it another way, Dorothy Sayers says, if you want your own way, God will let you have it. Hell is the enjoyment of one's own way forever. Oh, but what about the people who have never heard the message of Jesus Christ? How is that fair? Well, the book of Romans chapter 1 tells us that God himself has made himself known in all kinds of ways. As a matter of fact, God intimates that he builds this seed knowledge of God into every heart and mind. And he says, what has been made, creation, clearly points to him so that humanity is without an excuse. The point of Romans chapter 1 is, even if you've never heard anything about Jesus Christ, you will be judged on the basis of what you did with what you know, not judged on what you don't know. And everyone in this life gets to enjoy some of the blessings of God. No matter what you believe, no matter what you hope for, Everyone gets to enjoy the blessings of God. Max Lucchetti writes, Even the vilest precincts of humanity know the grace of God. People who want nothing of God still enjoy his benefits. Adolf Hitler witnessed the wonder of the Alps. Saddam Hussein enjoyed the blushing sunrise of the desert. The dictator, child molester, serial rapist, and drug peddler all enjoy the common grace of God's goodness. 
They hear children laugh. They smell dinner cooking. They tap their toes to the rhythm of a good song. They deny God, yet enjoy his benevolence. But these privileges are confiscated at the gateway to hell. So even people who don't want anything to do with God still benefit from his blessings in this life. Let me tell you this too. Any Christian that is comfortable with the idea of anybody going there ought to be ashamed of himself. We ought to spare and try to help people find Christ so that nobody goes there. Now, I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on the beautiful note of the destination or the destiny of choice. So, let's take a look on the other side of the coin. It is a glimpse. That's all we have. It's just a glimpse. And it's a rather distorted glimpse because it comes from somebody else, not our own glimpse. And that glimpse was 2,000 years ago, so things are a little bit different. We just have a glimpse of heaven. Now, think of it like this. You, you get a note from your best friend, John, who has gone to Florida to visit Disney World. And he's going to the Magic Kingdom, all right? Now, for this to be understandable, you've got to pretend something, all right? So, here's the thing. You've never been to Florida. You don't know what Florida's really like. And you've certainly never been to Disney World, so you don't know anything about that. You've not seen any pictures of Disney World. You've not watched any Disney movies. I know that's way out of reason. But just think. You don't know anything about it. Okay? Got it? And so you get this letter from your best friend, John, and, he, and this is what he writes. Oh, this, this is so awesome. I wish you were here. I'm standing just outside the gate of the Magic Kingdom, and I see the incredible landscaping of this awesome place. The shrubs are even trimmed like Disney characters. We parked way out in the parking lot, and a tram dropped us off at the gate. And it's an awesome gate. There's a giant clock in the shrubbery that looks like Mickey Mouse's silhouette. Oh, and above my head, the monorail keeps going in and out of the city, back and forth all the time. Off in the distance, I can just make out the spire of the kingdom's castle. And in front of the castle, there is this street that's lined with trees and stars and people smiling and laughing and flowers. And I can smell popcorn. I sense excitement. Everybody here is happy. This is the most awesome place I have ever been. And I'm just outside the gate. Now, you read the letter over and over again, wishing that you could go with John. But other than the smell of popcorn, you have no clue what he's talking about in this letter, do you? You don't know what a tram is like, or a monorail, or a clock that's in the silhouette of Mickey Mouse, or or shrubs that are shaped like Disney characters, because you don't know any of the Disney characters. But when you read his letter and the awesome description, you think, that's a place I want to visit, and you start making plans to go to Florida. Our friend John the Apostle gives us a glimpse at the beautiful city, the heavenly city, and tries to record it in the book of Revelation to just give us a glimpse. There's a lot to read. I won't take time. I'm just going to give you a snippet out of Revelation 21. When he measured it, the city, he found it was square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and its width and its height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. 
The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jason, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold as clear as glass. Now, do you really know anything more about the heavenly city than before I read that? I mean, that's just a glimpse, and it's a confusing glimpse. Heaven will be a cube, he says, 1,400 miles on each side. Now, that's important to know because the Holy of Holies in the temple in the Old Testament was 15 cubits by 15 cubits by 15 cubits. And it was to be a picture of heaven. The immense size is a little difficult to grasp. We just kind of gloss over that. Do you realize how big that is? From here, this church building to Arizona is 1,400 miles. This is one big city. Uh, 300 miles up uh, is the extent of our atmosphere. 350 miles up is the orbit range of the Hubble telescope. Our exosphere goes about 800 miles up to the outer edge of space. So this, the size of this city is nearly twice the size of our exosphere. Man, you talk about a great view from the top floor. Long elevator ride, but a beautiful view from the top. And you say, really? Come on. Is, is this a cube? I don't know. I don't have a clue. Does it really matter? Whether it's a literal picture or a figurative picture of heaven, the description is so awesome, so out there, that it defies anything we can comprehend with our minds. The walls are 216 foot thick. That's over two-thirds of a football field. In John's day, cities had walls for protection. These are for beauty. And you say, really, beauty? Yeah, how many of you have a decorative fence or a decorative wall on your own property? That's not so strange. I can't remember all of the details that we do have, let alone all the details we don't have. And you say, well, I can't even begin to fathom it. Well, neither can I this morning. It is just, I think John is trying to describe that which is indescribable. To be honest, I think he's at a loss for words. He says, it looks like gold, but it's clear as glass. What's that? And every gate is made from one single pearl? How do you get a pearl so big that you can carve a single gate out of a pearl? I don't know. Does it, it doesn't make sense to me, but it sounds fantastic. And by the time we get to the end of chapter 22, we really don't know much about heaven other than the fact that we don't want to miss this grand destination. This contrast, simply entitled, Heaven's Not Like Our Town, has been around for a while, but it's worth noting. Heaven's not like our town. We need a hospital with an emergency room to deal with sickness and injury. Heaven's not like our town. We have a police department in jail to deal with crime. Heaven's not like our town. We have door locks and security systems to protect us. The gates there will never be shut. Heaven's not like our town. We have trash pickup with a landfill to deal with the garbage and decay. Heaven's not like our town. We need streetlights to deal with the darkness. Heaven's sure not like our town. We have morgues, funeral homes, and cemeteries to deal with the dead. Get the picture? Somebody asked, will our pets be there? I don't know, but I know that God isn't done with creation. I know God is going to restore creation. That's what we find in the scripture. And the Bible says the lion will lie down with the lamb. And so maybe our pets will be there. 
I think the real question is, will your, will your pets want to see you again in heaven? All the negative things we associate with a big city, more crime, less relationships, people always in a hurry, poverty and homelessness, all that will be gone from this big city. Just think about it. Everyone will have a place. Everyone will have enough. There will be no more temptation to criminality in that place. And all the negative things we associate with small towns will be missing as well. Everybody knowing your business, gossip that is widespread, hopelessness and despair at moments in time, all that will be gone from this city as well. Every real estate agent knows it's all about location, 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 and God has the best location ever. Jesus said in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Did you catch it? You mentioned the word reward, and my ears perk up. Don't, don't yours? Reward? I want to find out more about this. I get excited about a reward. I bet most of us in this room have reward cards for a lot of the merchants in our area. You know, you spend thousands and thousands of dollars there, and you'll get an ice cream cone eventually if you get enough points. <laughs> it, it is to reward your loyalty as a customer. Life everlasting is not a little reward for being a loyal customer, a loyal doer of good deeds. Heaven is the extravagant gift of grace, not because we deserve it, because we don't, but because God is a giving God. And the Bible certainly suggests that God rewards those who love him. Maybe the reward is the three crowns of revelation, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, and the crown of glory. Sounds just like something the Father would do, doesn't it? I've got to be honest with you. I'm not sure any of us will get a reward. Sure, I won't. You might. But I don't care. I just want to be inside the gate. But the idea that God is a God who loves rewards just makes it more exciting as you contemplate tomorrow. Consider the words of Hebrews 11.6. Whenever we read it, we most often focus on the faith element. But don't miss the reward. And without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. It is a journey of faith. It is about earnestly seeking him and the rewards they will follow. So how do I reconcile all the questions that I can't answer about heaven or hell or life after death? Here's my bottom line. I am content to trust God to do it right. If indeed God is a perfect God, perfect in love and justice, then that means that God is incapable of making a mistake. And I am willing to trust my eternity and the eternity of everybody else to a God who cannot make mistakes. A God who loves us with an everlasting kind of love. A God who gave his son to pay the ransom for our sacrifice. A God who gives us rainbows after the storm. In his book, Give Me an Answer, Cliff Connectel tells this story that I'm going to close with. Two close friends graduated from college in Australia. One became a judge and the other became a banker. One day, the banker was arrested for embezzlement of a million dollars. He was to be tried by his best friend in court. Everybody knew the relationship. The courtroom was packed. The jury deliberated, and they delivered a verdict of guilty. 
then the judge was asked to pass the sentence. And he did what no one expected him to do. He leveled the harshest fine possible against his best friend. The crowd gasped in amazement. But then everyone watched in wonder as the judge stood, took off his robe, walked around the bar, and extended his hand to his friend and said, I have sold my home. I have taken all the savings out of my account. I have already paid the fine I leveled against you. That's how it works with God. In a single act, the eternal judge allowed the death of his son on the cross to pay our penalty of sin, which satisfied both his justice and his love and has made heaven possible for all of us. That any of us get in is amazing grace. That we should miss it is unthinkable. That God is so loving is unbelievable. Do you have your own questions about God, Jesus, faith, or the Bible? Email info at socc.org or call 812-334-0206.